Um, this afternoon, then, we are going to take a look at the um, last of the festivals that we see in John's Gospel, and it's the three Passovers that we have this afternoon. So if you'd begin by turning with me to John chapter 2. So this is the first of these three Passovers. It's the sort of smallest of the three in John's Gospel. Um, And for those of you familiar with uh, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you'll also note something strange. We see in chapter 2 the cleansing of the temple in this Passover. And uh, you may remember that in the synoptic Gospels, the cleansing of the temple is recorded as coming in the last week of Jesus' life. Um, So um, there's a lot of different scholarly theories on why that is, and um, I'm not going to go into it because we just don't have time. So um, (laughs) um, that's something for another day. Ask Deborah when you... you (laughs) Um, All right, so... um, but this first Passover is, uh, is interesting because although the Passover itself takes place in just these, um, kind of in chapter 2, 13 through chapter 3, it actually continues into chapter 4. And the passage that Deborah read this morning from the Samaritan woman at the well. So we're going to kind of look at what uh, this Passover is telling us. So um, here in chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, we get the cleansing of the temple. Um, and it's, of course, uh, he starts out with a bang, right? Um, he's just begun his adult ministry, and he doesn't start out slow and ramp up. He just goes right in uh, to Jerusalem and to the temple, and he says, I'm here, game on. Um, and, of course, we know, because we also get to read the first part of chapter 2, which is the wedding of Cana, we know that the messianic bridegroom is here. And again, speaking of imagery throughout the Old and New Testament, one of the common images for God in relationship to Israel was God as the bridegroom. And the wedding at Cana and his provision of the wine, which was the bridegroom's responsibility, is basically saying uh, the one, God is here. And then he goes right into the temple in Jerusalem for this Passover, and he cleanses the temple. And the one of uh, just I'm going to throw out one of the theories on the play on John's placement of it here, rather than at the end of Jesus's ministry, um, is because of its connection with Malachi chapter three, verses one through four. Now Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, is the book that talks about the messenger coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And who's that messenger? John the Baptist, right. And so we've just heard about John the Baptist in chapter 2. And so now, sticking in that same Old Testament book, in Malachi 3, we see that uh, the one who is coming, the Lord, uh, is like a refiner's fire, and he is going to purify the nation. So what's the heart of the nation if you're an Israelite or a Jew? It's the temple. So he is coming in and he is going to cleanse the temple. Um, And uh, the other thing that's, I think, the other reason is that this is a really big splash for Jesus. 
Um, because remember, Passover was one of the required feasts when people were supposed to go up to Jerusalem. And so uh, we know from uh, historians like Josephus and others that at the Passover, Jews, even if they could only do it once in a lifetime, would literally save up for their whole lives to be able to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem once. And so we, we know Josephus probably ex- expands his numbers somewhat, but we know that the population of Jerusalem expanded like tenfold during Passover. It became incredibly crowded. So Jesus is announcing to the entire people, and all these folks were going to go back to the Jews in dispersion all over the known world to say, guess who's here? Um, and um, part of the, um, the cleansing of the temple um, is this whole problem with, um, with the traitors and the money lenders. And Jesus basically drives them out. And this, this uh, quote from Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house will consume me. And that quote is really the psalmist crying out to God um, for help because of the opposition that he has faced because of his absolute love for God and for godly worship. And, of course, this is sort of what Jesus is going to face that his absolute love for God, because he is God the Son, and his absolute commitment to God is going to mean that a lot of people are in opposition to him. But just to give you a little, a little idea, so, um, so this was uh, the second temple, Herod, the temple that Herod built um, after the first temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Um, And Herod built this incredible base uh, that it sat on, which is amazing, an incredible engineering feat. Herod the Great, by the way, was a complete lunatic. Um, In fact, one of the great quotes from him by a Roman emperor was that it was better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. And in the Greek, it's a play on the word son and pig because Herod wouldn't touch a pig because he didn't want to be seen to be breaking kosher rules. But Herod liberally killed many of his wives and a whole lot of his children if he thought they were trying to gain any power. He was kind of a nutso, but he was an amazing engineer. So, um, And uh, the temple was one of the things, the, the second temple that he built. So this huge platform, and then on it sat the temple itself. Um, and right down here were the mikvah baths, um, and this is going to come up, become important in the third Passover. And these mikvah baths were kind of gross. I love to share this because I, I teach, you know, junior high and high school boys a lot, so they love sort of vaguely disgusting facts. <laughs> so, um, so a mikvah bath is was a Jewish ritual bath that you would go in, and it was a way of kind of sort of washing off some of your exterior sins before you could go into the temple. Um, and there were lots of different rules surrounding when you use mikvah baths. But the rabbinic tradition said this was not running water. So don't think of a bathtub like we have where you could run your water, wash off, and then pull the plug and let the dirty water go down. It was basically standing water in a little pool. And, um, and the, rabbinic, the rabbinic rules said that you didn't have to change that water until a stick would stand upright in it. <laughs> <laughs> so good luck washing your sins off in that. But anyway, <laughs> um, so 
So the mikvah baths were here, and people getting ready to go up for Passover to offer their to, to, to worship in the temple itself would have to go through the mix of ads ritually. And then along this area here, um, they have found evidence of um, all these little stores, basically tiny little shops where people would come to buy their sacrifice for the Passover, their unblemished lamb. Also down on that and that level, and then there was some of it going on in Solomon's portico right along here, um, you had the money changers. So first of all, the money changers, in order to offer to pay your temple tax, to give, in other words, one of your required tithes, you had to use a particular coin that didn't have anybody's head on it because that was considered idolatry. So um, if you were coming from, say, Egypt, because that's where you were, um, Alexandria had one of the largest populations of Jews in the world at the time of Jesus, interestingly. Um, and um, if you were coming to worship and to pay your temple tax in person, you had to exchange your money that had heads of emperors or whoever's on it and get the, the, the right coin to offer um, so sounds pretty cut and dried, and but but money lenders did what money lenders do, and they charged you a conversion fee, right? Um, well, um, unfortunately, they were often really overcharging, especially at Passover, because you've got a captive audience right now. Um, and then the unblemished lamb for the Passover offering. Um, what, what, one of the complaints, and Josephus talks about this too, one of the complaints was that these sellers, again, remember, if you were coming, say, from, uh, from, the, area, from the area of, say, modern-day Iraq, Iran, where a lot of Jews lived there as well, and you'd made this huge journey, you weren't going to bring a lamb with you all that way. So you would wait to buy your lamb when you got to Jerusalem. And unfortunately, um, some of these guys selling sheep were kind of selling, you know, broken lambs, not unblemished. And remember, all of the rules with Passover back in, in Exodus tell you that it has to be an unblemished lamb less than a year old, no defects. Well, they were kind of passing off all kinds of lambs to these poor guys that showed up. So, and, and again, it's kind of heartbreaking because you get all of these people who are genuinely coming to worship and they're getting fleeced. Ha ha. <laughs> um, so, um, so these, uh, so Jesus really, this is what he is, he's like, absolutely not. I'm having none of this. And so this is what the tables that he's overturning. And the whole point, I think, of this first Passover is true worship, that the people who are supporting worship need to be doing it properly, and that, um, uh, th that you know, religious, political, financial leaders shouldn't be fleecing the people when they come to worship. But I think the heart of the first Passover is actually found in um, chapter 3, which is a continuation. By the way, this is a picture of the western or the wailing wall. 
Um, these are people here. These are, this is the t original um, uh, platform that Herod put the temple on. These blocks are massive, and every single one of the outer blocks is dressed stone. Um, just incredible. And then this, to give you a sense of scale, this is the very top of arches. It's all that you can see of the arches because the level of the ground between now and Jesus' day is up much higher. So, um, so this is incredible. And why did Jews worship here at the Wailing Wall? Because it is the closest point to the Holy of Holies uh, at the Temple Mount. Um, and so this is significant. Um, and in fact, of course, one of the iconic pictures of Israel is when in the 67 war, uh, the Israeli troops broke through to the Western Wall. And um, it's this iconic picture of, I think there were four or five um, of the Israeli Defense Force troops standing in front of the Western Wall in tears because you know, it's the first time in hundreds of years that they had been that close to the Holy of Holies. It, it, Google it. It's a great, it's a great photo. So, um, so that's the Western Wall, Psalm 69 there. So into chapter 3, though, and of course this is, um, this of course is, if you know nothing else about the gospel, we all know 316, right? For God so loved the world. But this, I think, is the heart of the first Passover here. This is taking place during the Passover, and we see um, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees. And remember, the Pharisees are often kind of the, the like black hat bad guys in the Gospels, right? Um, but we have to be careful about this, because these aren't cardboard cutout bad guys. These are real people. Um, and Nicodemus was one of them. So we see that some of the Pharisees are just trying to understand. And it would have been hard for them to understand. It's a huge leap. Think about what they're being, you know, like I said earlier, if Jesus showed up in front of you and said, I am the Son of God, what would you think? You know, and, and so this would have been a big leap for them. And um, just as a tiny historical thing, the Pharisees, um, scholars really think that they came out of the whole cleansing of the temple after Antiochus IV. And part of their, their sort of the genesis of the Pharisees was really, look, a lot of us compromised with this, with this sort of Greek, this Hellenization of Judaism, and we cannot do that. We are called to be God's people in the world. So we cannot, we cannot let ourselves... Um, you know, sort of become uh, contaminated is kind of how it winds up. But I think their thing originally was we can't compromise. And so we have to really, we have to really hold fast to what it means to be God's people. And so, um, uh, you know, I think that it's important for us to not, um, uh, to not just think that the Pharisees are these just cardboard cutout baddies because they really weren't. They were people that were trying to be faithful, um, but they got so enamored of their rules that they forgot what God had actually been telling them. Um, and so I, I think it's kind of a good warning <laughs> to not become a Pharisee, um, but also um, a good reminder that how do we hold fast to the truth without compromising? and without becoming too hardened. Um, and that's, you know, that's the middle ground. And I think how we do that is by being really humble and by being on our knees all the time. You know, this is why our services start with confession.
<laughs> so, um, so, but Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and he comes to Jesus by night. And we kind of talked about that with the winter thing earlier. He's trying to do this undercover. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's curious. And this whole discussion ensues um, about water and the spirit. And I don't really have time to go into all of it. There are a lot of connections here um, with um, the end times, basically. With God at the end, when the day of the Lord, when God comes... He is going to um, he's going to pour out the spirit of God and renew and refresh his people, cleanse them from their sins. Some of your references there: Isaiah 32:15, Joel 2:28 through 29, which is one of the passages quoted on Pentecost in Acts, and then Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 25. Um, so this spirit and by uh, water and spirit really is um, Jesus saying, look, you're thinking you're cleansed from sin and given this new life by going to the disgusting mikvah baths. I'm telling you that it's by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes when I've been lifted up. So he's already here pointing towards the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension 50 days after that. Um, and, um, and of course, um, I think really the key here, um, John has already told us that Jesus is the Lamb of God. But now again, this meta-narrative of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings, 3.14 uh, and as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Um, and so this, uh, this is a reference to Numbers chapter 21. Um, to there's, Remember the Israelites rebel, and God as punishment sends the, the fiery serpents, or, or the, basically the poisonous snakes. Um, and um, the, uh, the poisonous snakes start biting people, people start dying. Moses intercedes. Moses says, please God, make this stop. And God tells Moses what he needs to do to make it stop. And he tells him basically to make a bronze serpent on a staff and hold it up uh, for the people to see. And anyone who looks on it will not die. Um, and of course, this is a direct reference to the cross, and I think this illustration does a great, a great job of it. And it's this reminder that um, we, you know, we have to deal with our sin. And I know that's not very popular in our world anymore. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, one of the things that I run into increasingly, and, and, um, and it always surprises me, is people who tell me there's no such thing as sin. And I'm like, huh, then you don't know me very well. <laughs> um, and, uh, but we have to be willing to confess and repent. And of course, we also know, um, uh, you know, it's like 2 Corinthians 5 says, uh, for God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so I think this is a great illustration of what Jesus is saying here in 314, 
but that is referencing back to those wilderness wanderings. If we really want to be saved from the judgment on our sin, because that's what those fiery serpents were, we're going to have to look to the cross. Because this serpent, does it really take away our sin? It's a bronze statue. And last time I checked, I didn't have any statues in my house that could take away my sin. Um, And so Jesus, though, does take our sin, and he is lifted up for it. Um, And when we look on him and accept him as our Savior, then we are saved. And not just for a time, because remember, all these folks who were in the wilderness looked on the serpent and lived. What's What's the other part of this judgment, though? They still don't get to go to the promised land. They still don't get to go to the promised land. It's only with Christ that that happens. So this, I think, is really the heart of of what Jesus is telling us in this first Passover, that he is the one who is going to save us from sin, that he is the one who's bringing about true worship. And this then continues into chapter 4, um, and this, this is also, I know we're kind of getting a little bit out of, um, a little bit out of the Passover directly, because Jesus is now on his way home after the Passover. And he's going up, he's, he's decided to walk through Samaria, which was kind of unusual. Usually they'd come out and go up. To walk through Samaria was to, was to incur um, ritual contamination because the Samaritans, interestingly, one of the, um, uh, basically some of the rabbinic teaching about the Samaritans, and I don't have time to explain the whole history of the Samaritans, was that they are menstruants from birth. And if you remember in Leviticus, a woman on her menstrual cycle was considered ritually unclean. And so she had to be away from society because she was ritually impure. And remember the whole, and this is a little simplistic, but in Leviticus, it's, I call it sin cuties. So if I'm, like, if, I have, if I'm in the middle of sin cuties and Carrie touches me, she has sin cuties. <laughs> um, and now we've both got to deal with it. So, um, so this is what they said about the Samaritans. So for Jesus to walk right through the middle here is pretty radical. Um, But he does this, and of course he has this encounter with the woman at the well and the passage on the living water, which again references back to the wilderness wanderings and to God saving his people there. Um, But a big part of the point that he is making in this first Passover journey has to do with true worship. Remember, zeal for your house will consume me, but who is the house? And here in chapter 4, I think he makes some of the sort of really um, the, the highlight of this, this, this first Passover discussion, um, which is uh, she says to him, well, you know, you, you say we worship here. Um, so you've got Mount Gerizim and Mount Abal. This is, uh, this is in actually there are Samaritans who still live in this community today. Um, and this goes back to Joshua. When Joshua comes into the land... And there's the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing. Well, on Mount Gerizim, which was the mountain of blessing from Joshua, the Samaritans built their temple. 
And that's where they worshipped, and some of it's kind of weird. But um, anyway, um, but she's like, well, this is well where we worship, and we trace back to some of the early tribes. Um, but you say you've got to worship on Mount Zion. What's Jesus' response to that ultimately? I tell you, the time is coming when we will worship in spirit and in truth. All right, he's just talked about being born again of the spirit with Nicodemus, right? Um, and now he's saying truth. Let's jump forward to John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the real temple is not a building on Mount Gerizim. It's not a building on Mount Zion. The real temple is a person, Jesus Christ. And so ultimate true worship um, is going to happen in and through Jesus Christ. And so, how, again, this is, this is part of this first Passover thing that the Passover lamb is going to be Jesus, who is also the altar and the temple. All of it finds its meaning in him. So um, this is Jacob's well. Um, uh, you can still go to, there's a big old church over it now. Um, and uh, last time I know some of you were, were on that trip too. So some people drank out of Jacob's well, but one of the guys actually shone his flashlight into the bottom and it was just disgusting. <laughs> I didn't drink out of Jacob's well because it looked like one of the mikvah baths. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, so um, that is the first Passover with, I think, the, those two big lessons, that Jesus is the temple and that he will be lifted up so that we can be saved from our sin. So now we move into the second Passover, which is chapter 6 through 9, basically. Um, of John's Gospel. So jumping forward some. Here is, uh, in chapter 6, is of course the, the great story of the feeding of the 5,000, which interestingly is, uh, is, the only, is the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. So there are some miracles that are included in two or three, but this is the only one that is in all four. Um, and so... Um, Jesus is, uh, this is the second Passover, so it's a year later. Um, and Jesus is um, up in the Galilee area. And uh, he is uh, going, probably on his way, walking down to celebrate Passover. Um, now, there's another theory, and this is, kind of, this is kind of interesting. So, Passover was such an important feast for the Jews that they um, ended up making provision for people who were not able to go to Passover for some reason. And it's called Second Passover. And it took place a month after First Passover. Now, if at all possible, you were supposed to be at First Passover, uh, the 14th of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan. But... Um, Rabbi, uh, in fact, this is actually in the Torah, the first five books, they realized that sometimes for various reasons people were not going to be able to celebrate first Passover. Um, maybe they were ill. Maybe they were ritually unclean. So um, a connection there, think of you know, the story of the Good Samaritan and you remember they walk, the, the priests go on the other side because they don't want to touch a dead body because if you touched a dead body you were ritually unclean for seven days. 
So like if you were going up to celebrate Passover and you touched a dead body on your way, you couldn't celebrate Passover because you were ritually unclean. So they came up with this whole second Passover thing. So some scholars think that the feeding of the 5,000 was actually second Passover, which was a way that you could celebrate Passover without actually being in the temple if you, for some reason, couldn't get there. So, um, so second Passover here, but uh, so it's either second Passover or Jesus is on his way down with all of these other pilgrims from the Galilee. Um, and he's, they're all following him. He's doing some teaching, as we know. There's a whole bunch of people there. Um, and he, uh, he, he says, um, oh, we should, we should give them, Jesus says to Philip, um, this very leading question in verse 5, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Because uh, he's testing them. Um, and Philip's like, I don't know. Plus, even if there was a food truck around, I don't have nearly enough money to cover all of this. Um, <laughs> um, and so then, of course, we get, um, we get the little boy with his five barley loaves. Um, barley was part of the first harvest of Passover, um, and, uh, but it was also the food of the poor. Only the wealthy could afford wheat. The poor ate barley. So we, this gives us a sense of the community gathered here. And uh, he feeds them. There is enough for everybody. And they gather in these 12 baskets full. And these 12 baskets full really are a symbol of the gathering in of the 12 tribes, which had been dispersed first by the Assyrian destruction of the northern kingdom in 712, then by the Babylonian destruction of the southern kingdom in 586. And so the gathering in of these 12 tribes were viewed by the Jews in Jesus' day as part of the end times God gathering in all of the tribes again to bring them back to worship, um, to bring them back to be his people. Um, and so this in-gathering is a sign that the day of the Lord is approaching. It's a symbol of God gathering all of this in um, and so there's, there's that element, um, but there's also something else, and it has this connection with the wilderness wanderings, um, because they believed that this ingathering would happen when the prophet like Moses came. Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy, is that God's promise that one day he will raise up for his people a prophet like Moses who will lead them in a new exodus, which connects with Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. And Jesus now is saying, uh, the prophet like Moses is here, but I am a better prophet than Moses. And again, think about what I talked about, about Moses giving the law versus Jesus basically again towing <laughs> uh, truth and grace. Moses, basically told the people, God is going to send us manna from heaven. Jesus says what? I am the manna from heaven. Again, degree and function is exponentially higher than anything that Moses could do because Moses was just a person. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. 
And so, um, so you know, and, and the other thing that's interesting is what was true about the manna during Moses' day? It didn't keep, did it? You got it for one day, and if you tried to keep it, what happened to it? It got bugs, right. Jesus is gathering in 12 baskets full. And this is a sign of those end times and of the end gathering into God's kingdom, into God's heavenly kingdom, um, where there is no, as Revelation tells us, death or decay or sin. So this in-gathering that points us both backward and forward to what Jesus is doing. And then, of course, um, in verses 16 through 21, Jesus does what after he feeds the 5,000? He walks on water. All right? Um, I've got to tell you, I can't do that. I'm assuming none of you can. Uh, Jesus can. Why? Because he's God and has control over all the forces of nature. But it's a reference, there's a great connection to the walking on water to Psalm 77. Um, and Psalm 77 is in part a recounting of the Exodus and wilderness wandering. Um, and it talks about Moses leading the people. With your strong arm, you redeemed your people. Um, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, Moses and Aaron participated, but who was the one who made the path through the sea? God. Who is the one who is now walking on the water, footprints unseen? Jesus, who therefore is God. This is just the drumbeat of John's Gospel. Um, and so um, we get the walking on the water. Another quick connection, we're told in 621, and immediately they reached the shore. So as soon as Jesus got in their boat, immediately they reached the shore. And this is a connection to Psalm 107, verse 33. Um, and it's this wonderful, um, and, and some of you may know it, so that some went down to the sea in ships. And they come into this big storm um, and they finally pray to God and immediately upon praying they reach the shore. So this is part of that as well. When God is brought into the equation, immediately we reach the shore. Now 625 through 59 is what's known as the bread of life discourse and it follows directly from the feeding of the 5,000. And um, again, much of this has to do with God's provision of quail and manna for the people when they are walking through in the wilderness wandering for those 40 years. And he says in verse in 627, do not work for food that spoils. Again, referencing the manna going bad if you tried to hold on to it. But also referencing, you know, get your priorities straight. God should be our priority, not, not other things. That's our first priority is God. Um, and, um, and then he goes into an extended teaching which gets um, increasingly difficult. It's difficult for us to read. Imagine, and we live this side of the resurrection. And I, I know not everybody here is, is um, Anglican Episcopalian, um, but it's even difficult for us to read, and we're, we do go to communion a lot, right? Um, 
But imagine how what Jesus says in these verses would have sounded to a Jewish ear. And, um, and, and it's pretty shocking, and you can see why it shocked the people that heard it. Um, so he starts this teaching, um, and what is, verse 30, what is the sign that you do? Um, and they ask him specifically, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. <laughs> and this is really coming because they liked the free food, right? Who doesn't like a lunch buffet? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they're kind of hoping this keeps up. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, but my father gives the true bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Give us this bread always. And of course this echoes the Samaritan woman, right? So I'd like that water. She doesn't totally get what he's saying, but she's like, that sounds good. Plumbing, indoor plumbing is probably what she's thinking. Um, (laughs) They're thinking, oh, a cook, a home chef, awesome. Um, But then Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All right, so here we get into something that we saw in chapter 2, the Messianic bridegroom and the Messianic banquet. And this connects so much with Jesus' end times teaching in the Synoptic Gospels. He uses all these parables of the wedding feast. Jesus now is pointing us beyond just the manna in the wilderness wanderings. He is pointing us to the day of the Lord and to the ultimate messianic banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Um, And there are some great Old Testament connections here. And this is what Jesus is getting. He's gathering all of this together. Um, Isaiah, um, so uh, for example, Isaiah 25 Uh, This is one of my funeral passages, by the way. Um, So we had one of my funeral hymns and one of my funeral passages. Um, You should plan your funerals if you hadn't. It's it's a really gift to your families, by the way. Um, So so Isaiah 25, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wine strained clear, and he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken." The feeding of the 5,000 took place where? On a mountain. What is Jesus going to do? Swallow up death forever. Um, Isaiah 25 and and John 5 and the feeding of the 5,000 and the bread of life discourse take us beyond even the wilderness wanderings to what those pointed to to this messianic banquet, to the feast on the mountain when death itself is destroyed. And then Jesus says here in John 6, and it is begun. It has happened. And of course, where there will be no more death and no more tears takes us where? 
Revelation. Right. Ladies, the thing, the, I love getting to teach the Bible. And I love it because of this. Because you see as we start digging that from the beginning to the end, God has said the same thing to us over and over and over and over and over. I love you. The Jesus Storybook put, Bible, I love the way it puts it. God's um, never giving up, never ending, chase you to the ends of the world, love. And he will keep saying it until the very end. This is what scripture says. And we have to learn to read scripture forward and backward to really get the meat, to really feast on all that God is telling us. That from the very beginning, he has been saying, I have a plan for you. And it is good. And so in this, we, take, we go all the way back to Exodus. And we come into the prophets. And we come into Jesus. And we go to Revelation. And all of it, God is saying over and over and over again, I will cleanse you from your sin through Jesus Christ, because I love you. He has said the same thing. And, I, you know, and part of what I love is I, I just hope that you all go away and are like, ooh, there are connections. Um, and that's, I mean, that's my hope, because it's just wonderful when we really see it. Um, and in all of these ways, um, so Isaiah 25, Isaiah 55 um, you know, come and buy wine and milk without money, without price. Don't spend your money on that which is not bread or your labors for that which does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. You are what you eat. Eat what is good. Um, and then in verse 3 of Isaiah 55, he tells us what that good food is. Incline your ear to me. Listen so that you may live. Is not that what Jesus has just repeated in John chapter 6? I am the bread of life, which I give you without cost, and if you want to live, you have to eat of me. And then, of course, he ramps it up as chapter 6 continues to the point um, that he says, um, something that is very, very shocking, um, beginning in uh, verse 53. Jesus says, truly, truly, listen up, um, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's a little discomforting for us to read that, isn't it? Um, you know, I know whenever I teach this to a youth group, I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder what they're going to go with this. And to be honest, we live in the age of zombies, so that's usually what the youth group boys come up with. Um, <laughs> that is not what Jesus is saying. <laughs> Um, one of the charges against the early church, actually, was that they were cannibals because um, their services were often hidden because of persecution. And so people just got bits and glimpses, so they thought that we were actually, like, 
you know, eating each other or something. Um, what is Jesus is speaking metaphorically here? What's he saying? Faith, right. Now, but what is interesting in John chapter 6, um, this, that takes, it's, it's a little different than we're going to see um, in the third Passover. John, in John chapter 6, Jesus is telling us about our need to abide in Christ. And this concept of abiding in Christ is one of John's drumbeats in this gospel. Um, but, so we know that on the cross we are saved. But in John chapter 6, Jesus is actually referencing something else about Passover. To be included in the community for Israelites was to partake of the Passover. That's why this whole second Passover came about, because it was so important. What happened that first night of Passover if you didn't eat of the Passover lamb? You died when the angel of death came over because you didn't have the blood on the lintel of your doorpost and you hadn't partaken in the meal. You were not part of the community. So how do we, um, how do we sort of have this community identity? By eating and drinking the flesh and the blood. Now, now I know sometimes that gets narrowly defined as communion, and that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about being in daily communion with him. Abiding in Christ is is to be eating daily of the manna, who is Christ, which is, how do we eat that? What did Isaiah 55 just tell us? Incline your ear to me. Right. So Jesus here in chapter 6 is pointing to uh, one element of Passover, which is this community identity How are we new Israel? By partaking in the Passover feast, by eating of the manna, by eating of the flesh of the Lamb of God. How do we do that? By listening through faith. So John 6, I think, is going to do something a little different than the third Passover with the crucifixion is. The third Passover has its, its, its unique flavor too. But here in John 6, Jesus is telling the people, you're going to have to eat of me. Um, and so um, one of the interesting things that we'll see in, as we get into the third Passover here um, is, uh, that, um, is that John does not include the actual meal of the Last Supper. The synoptic Gospels do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have the Last Supper meal, which then Paul picks up on in Corinthians. This is my body, which is given for you. This is uh, my, my blood, which is shed for you. Um, drink this for the remission of sins. John does not include that because he sort of covered um, the, the kind of continual manna feeding from Christ here in John 6. So John is actually going to hit a different aspect of the last of the events of the last supper than the um, than the uh, synoptic gospels do. All right, and I don't have time even though I've got way more things to teach you about that, but we don't have time. So moving along, um, we're going into the third Passover, John's cha- John chapter 12 through 19. Would somebody read that for me? I'm just kidding. All right. <laughs> Please do go home and read these passages. All right, so John chapter 12, 
puts us into uh, the week of Passover, um, six days before the Passover. Um, And this is when all of the pilgrims would start gathering so that they could start doing their yucky mikvah bath preparations. And if I were you, I'd get there early, so you got to get in first. <laughs> so, um, and uh, so uh, they, would, they would gather, they would find places to stay, they would start their ritual preparations, they would start making preparations for the meal, etc. Um, and Jesus, uh, Jesus though, um, we see uh, in this week before the run-up, he doesn't do any of that. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he do the mikvah baths? Right, he's sinless. He is the unblemished lamb. He doesn't need to go into a mikvah bath because he is sinless. Um, so, but everybody else is gathering for that. Instead of him going to a mikvah bath, what does Jesus do? He is anointed by Mary for his burial. Right. So Jesus, his preparation for the Passover is the preparation for his execution. That's what Jesus is already focusing on. So we see that in the first part of chapter 12. Um, then as we move into 12, verse 12, we get the triumphal entry. Um, okay, so this is one of my favorite passages. Um, <laughs> so the triumphal entry, Jesus enters Jerusalem from the east gate, um, from uh, the, basically the area um, just around the Mount of Olives through the east gate. So he would have been coming in this way through these gates here. And I've got to go on a rabbit trail because I love this bit. Um, so um, in Zechariah and also in the book of Ezekiel, we get two different images. And we, uh, in the book of Ezekiel, he is given this vision of the, Shekin- the Shekinah, the, the glory, the weight of God coming back in. Um, in the renewed Jerusalem and into the, the basically the temple, you know, God's temple, um, and he comes in from the east. In Zechariah, we're told that he enters from the east, but there is an earthquake and the mountains on that side split in two, and he enters, the way is made straight, and he enters with the armies of God. And it is this incredible imagery And Jesus enters from the east. And what is he saying by that? The day of the Lord is here. And God, your God, has come. And he is going to enter his temple. And um, But you'll notice in this picture now, I know it's probably not really clear at the back, but the, the, this is walled up now. And it was walled up after the, the um, Islamic conquest of Jerusalem. And they put a cemetery in front of it because they wanted to basically tell the Jews, your God is never going to come because he can't come through the uncleanness of the cemetery. And if we brick it up, he can't get in. So just abandon hope, all of you. Um, but, of course, we know that God can, <laughs> as we see in, in, on the day of the resurrection, God can walk through walls. So I'm not so worried about that. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so he comes in, and, of course, the people scatter their uh, palm branches. Um, this, again, takes us back. Uh, the palm branches take us back to both of the feasts that we've already talked about. The tabernacles, God coming to dwell with his people, 
but also to the Feast of Hanukkah because after Judas Maccabeus um, kicked out the Seleucids and, the, and his basically family became um, the rulers of Israel, guess what their symbol was? A palm tree. And so this palm tree and the waving of the palm branches was actually this hope for the new Moses, the new deliverer, king like David. It was very much a military political hope that they're waving all of these branches. Um, And, of course, actually Jesus riding on the donkey. Guess who took over the leadership of the nation and was crowned, anointed as king, on a donkey? Go way back. King David. And then Solomon. If you remember when Solomon was having the fight with his brother over who would be king after David popped his clogs, um, the uh, Solomon's uh, mama puts him on David's donkey. And that was the way of saying, I'm the big cheese now because I, I got dad's donkey. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so. Um, and of course, they're shouting Hosanna, which was one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 18, verses 25 and 26. It became Hosanna, became kind of just sort of a cry of joy, but it actually is more, uh, is actually is save us, O Lord. Um, and so it's this pray, prayer of, of praise and, and prayer for salvation, all of those. Read the rest of Psalm 118, though, because it's very instructive about the sacrifice being bound to the horns of the altar before he's killed. Sound like somebody we know? Um, all right, so verse, chapter 12, verses 20 through 26. Three, these Greeks come and they want to, sir, we would see Jesus. And here we know that we've arrived. Um, Jesus curiously doesn't answer their request for an audience. Verse 23, and Jesus said, The hour has come, the kairos has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour for glory has come, but it is not the glory that the people are expecting when they were waving their palm branches for the king. It is the glory of the cross lifted up. Um, And so we know now what's coming. He continues with that theme in verse 27. My soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, this telos, this ultimate end, I have come to this kairos hour. In other words, everything is about to be fulfilled. So he continues to teach and to pray more into that. Now verses 13 uh, through 17 are the Last Supper, but we don't actually see the meal in John. Um, Verse 13 begins with the washing of the disciples' feet. Um, He's highlighting a different... John chooses to highlight a slightly different element than the synoptic Gospels did. Um, We get the word of the betrayal. We get the new commandments. Um, and then chapter 14, um, and I think this is such, um, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this is also, actually, this is the gospel reading for my funeral. Um, so, <laughs> um, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, again, I want you to think back this meta-narrative through all these feasts. 
has been the wilderness wanderings, the exodus and the wilderness wanderings, which were all preparatory to what? Coming into the promised land. Um, So we escape from slavery in Egypt, but our sin means that we wander around lost for a while until that generation dies out and that sin is dealt with. And then we come into the promised land. This is the big narrative But it was only ever a type and a sign of the ultimate Passover. Because they come into the promised land, but are they perfect when they get there? No. Is it perfect when they get there? No. Is there still sadness and sickness and death and anger and sin? Yes. So the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and the entry into the promised land were just a sign pointing to the ultimate Passover, pointing to the ultimate exodus and the ultimate entrance into the promised land. And here in John 14, Jesus tells us exactly how this happens. I am the way. If you want to get out of Egypt, whatever your spiritual Egypt may be, If you want to stop wandering around lost in the desert, then you have to come to me because I am the only way into the promised land. Everything else is short of that. Everything else is going to leave you in the same situation that you were in before. And um, for those of you that are C.S. Lewis fans, you may have read The Great Divorce. Well, I love that book. It's kind of a little bit of an allegory on heaven and hell, but I think it really teaches us something kind of interesting here. The interesting thing about hell in, in The Great Divorce is that there's actually a bus that goes between heaven and hell. And you can catch the bus, and, um, but what's interesting is people get up to heaven and they're like, whoa, this is too real and they choose to ride the bus back down to hell and stay there. Um, But what's interesting about C.S. Lewis's conception of hell in this book um, is that it's really, we just want our own way. And so we would rather live a half-life, this gray, drizzly, rainy life where everything is kind of fake, rather than go with the way into heaven. And, you know, that's, I think, part of the sadness that I see in people that are not believers. Um, that we actually just choose to not, to not go with the one who is the way. And so we get stuck for all eternity wandering in the wilderness rather than following the way and taking that journey through the waters with Christ into the ultimate promised land. Um, this is a quote from Thomas Akempis. It's in your handout, so I won't read it at you. But I think it's a great, a great uh, quote um, about the way, the truth, and the life. So if we want to, if we want to get out of the wilderness wanderings, if we want to get out of slavery to sin and death in our spiritual Egypts, we have to go with Jesus. Um, we get a lot of teaching then on the Holy Spirit and prayers for uh, for the disciples. And then beginning in chapter 19, um, uh, we, um, excuse me, in chapter 18, uh, the, uh, Jesus heads on over 
into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is a Hebrew word that means oil press. It's where they would have, there was an olive grove and they would have pressed uh, olives there. Um, and of course, Judas betrays him. Um, and, uh, but one of the things that's really interesting when the temple guard come to arrest him, um, he says, um, they, uh, verse 5, they, um, uh, he asks, who do you seek? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in John's Gospel, we get what are these I am statements. Some of them are um, descriptive, so like I am the bread of life. But then there are some that are definitive I am statements, like this one. So, I am, I am he, which in Greek is ego I me, which is the way the Septuagint translated the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, uh, yod He vav He Yahweh. And this, of course, is the name that God gave to Moses just prior to the Exodus and to him going to Egypt to say, let my people go. Jesus here, on his lips, is the divine name. In other words, he's saying, I'm God. I'm way more than Jesus of Nazareth. I, I am, I, ego I me, I am God. Um, I am the one that you're looking for, and the Kairos hour has come. Um, and so... Um, Notice, I think, what's astonishing. We're told that they fall back, and they seem to just kind of be stunned at his total lack of fear. He has come to terms with what's about to happen. He is ready to give his life for our salvation. And so he's like, okay, let's do this. I mean, I don't think he was like, yay, let's get on with it. But he was like, he was, he was ready to fulfill his purpose. Um, Peter, of course, still doesn't really get what's going on. I'm going over my apologies. Um, but um, so we then get the trials. We get a threefold proclamation of innocence, both in front of the high priest and then with, with Pilate. Um, and this uh, threefold um, declaration of innocence is really, and that, that comes from other people is really, um, whenever you see threes in the Bible, it's God's way of saying, you know, something is really, really true. So he is really innocent. In other words, he is the spotless Passover lamb. He is, he is totally innocent. But now we see John bringing three things together. Um, he brings together the Passover lamb. He brings together the sacrifice and the scapegoat of Yom Kippur. Read Leviticus 16. Yom Kippur was the great day of atonement when all of the sins of the nation, known and unknown, were dealt with through the sacrifice and through the scapegoat. And the scapegoat was an animal who the high priest said an official prayer over that transferred all of the sins of the nation to it. It then had a red cord tied around its neck. It was taken out to one of the high places over, um, uh, over near Jerusalem, and it was pushed off a cliff where it died so that the sins died with it. And he's also bringing together the suffering servant songs of Isaiah, um, pre- predominantly the suffering servant songs in Isaiah 52, 53, the fourth servant song. And so now we see Jesus gathering all of these things together and dealing again with all of these, all of these feasts, all of these prophetic words, saying, "I am fulfilling all of this now." And um, 
So that is what he does in his trials. By the way, this is the high, this is the high priest's house that they've done some excavation on in Jerusalem. This is the courtyard where Jesus would have stood um, uh, during, during his trial, which is pretty amazing to stand there. Um, and then um, we are told that Jesus is crucified um, at the hour that the Passover lambs were being killed in the temple. He is the Passover lamb. Uh, 1929, Jesus is offered sour wine on a hyssop branch. Seems like a small detail, right? Guess what they were supposed to put the blood of the lamb over the lintels of their doorposts with? A hyssop branch. And 1931, his legs are not broken. He declares it is finished and he gives up his spirit. Jesus decided, I've done it, and I die now on my terms. His legs were not broken because no bones of the Passover lamb were permitted to be broken. His legs are not broken. Um, And then in 1934, his side is pierced by the soldier and blood and water flow out. And we've talked about that in Tabernacles. It is the blood of cleansing for sin from Zechariah 14. It is the blood of the new creation and of God being in his holy temple from Ezekiel 47. Uh, It is the water from the rock, from the Exodus wanderings, um, all of this. And it is the blood flowing down, the blood of the Passover lamb that gets put on the lintels of our lives so that the angel of death for righteous judgment for sin will pass over us. Um, 1938 through 42, his body is taken off of the cross and he is buried in a new tomb. And it's the tomb of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah 53, 9 is your cross-reference there. And it's in a garden. We're told that his tomb was in a garden. And the resurrection happens in that garden. And this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And it takes us all the way forward to Revelation 22. It takes us all the way back because where did the first sin happen? In a garden. Because the people were not obedient. And the judgment for sin was that they were expelled from the garden. Um, Jesus now, both in Gethsemane and in the garden of his death, was perfectly obedient to the Father, and he dealt with our sin because of that. He who knew no sin became sin for us because he was obedient to the Father. What Adam did not do, Jesus did perfectly. And so with this garden and then with the resurrection, and, and then we come, of course, into the new creation with this river running through the city of God that gives life to all of these trees, also Ezekiel 47, the water that will refresh and renew the world when God's kingdom fully comes. Um, (laughs) In other words, the curse has been dealt with because of his death on the cross. He is the new and better Adam, as Paul will tell us. Um, And so... In, in the three Passovers, Jesus tells us 
All of these ways that he fulfills scripture. In tabernacles, he did that. In, in Hanukkah, he did that. And, all, and now he tells us, with the resurrection in the garden, that the curse is undone and that we are now moving towards that ultimate kingdom of heaven and that's the city of God where it tells us there will be no sun by day nor moon by night because God himself will be in their midst and he will be our light. He is our light. He is our living water. He is our bread from heaven. He is our Passover lamb. He is our suffering servant. He is our manna. He is our all in all, as the hymn goes. So thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Amen.